You're listening to Get Fed Today, one podcast designed to provide the Christian a hearty Bible study five days a week. While our mission is to showcase a variety of different Bible teachers, if you want to access more content from a particular pastor, simply listen to the end of the episode for additional information. On behalf of the entire team at Get Fed Today, it is our prayer that today's episode encourages your growth in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Good evening, everybody. It is such a thrill for me to be here. I mean, I've known of the ministry here of Calvary Chapel, Philadelphia, and of course your pastor, Pastor Joe, for so long. And uh, I have so respected it and admired it from afar. And now to come here and to be here through the weekend of the missions conference and then the uh, conference that we had through the week, I I just, I I heard about it before, but seeing it with my eyes, I'm even more blessed and just praising God for it. And I, I praise God just for the, the like-mindedness that, uh, that I sense with you and your congregation and with your pastor. And it's just a real delight for me to be here. Uh, I'd like you to open up your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. Now, I'm going to speak to you this evening about a title for Jesus. Did you know that the Bible's filled with wonderful titles for Jesus? You knew that, right? Uh, We could spend a great evening talking about some of those titles, right? Isn't that a great Bible study to do? Right? Lion of the tribe of Judah, the first and the last, the desire of all nations, the Alpha and the Omega, on and on and on. We could have a wonderful time of studying God's Word, talking about those amazing titles for Jesus, because they're so rich, so full of meaning. Now, recently, when I was teaching through the Gospel of Matthew, I ran over a title for Jesus that I had seen, I had read, I had known for the longest of times. I probably knew this title for Jesus before I was ever a believer. Yet, it never really registered for me. You know, the penny didn't drop, so to speak. I never really figured out that it was so important or so significant. And what is the title that I'm talking to you about this evening? Kind of trying to build up the suspense a little bit. Because, you know, here's the problem. When you hear it, you're going to be underwhelmed. You're going to wonder, what's so great about that title? I I really, believe me, I've done this before and people have this reaction. All right, are you ready for it? Here's the title. Jesus of Nazareth. Now, see, there you are. Now, what? You need to appreciate what a significant title this is. And let me read to you our text for this evening. Matthew chapter 2, starting at verses 22 and 23. Okay, let's look at this carefully. But when he heard, by the way, the he there in verse 22 is Joseph, the adoptive father of Jesus. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee. And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. Father, bless your word to us here this evening. Give us ears to hear and a heart full of expectancy and open heart to hear your truth in Jesus' name. Amen. 
17 times in the New Testament, the Son of God is given the title Jesus of Nazareth. There's a few other places where he's referred to as being a Nazarene or from some locale like that. But 17 times you'll find that phrase, Jesus of Nazareth. And if you break out your concordance or type in in the word search in your Bible program, you'll see that it's used in a remarkable variety of situations and on the lips of the remarkable variety of different kinds of people in situations. The, the, the servant girl who tried to associate Peter with Jesus, this is what she said on the night Jesus was betrayed and delivered over to Pilate. This is what that servant girl said. This fellow also was with Jesus of Nazareth. That's the name by which she knew Jesus. By the way, that was an association that Peter denied, was it not? Demons called Jesus by this title. In Mark chapter 1, verse 24, this is what they said. Let us alone. What do we have to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? A servant girl said it. Demons said it. The gospel writers many times used it as a simple description of Jesus. It was also a title on the lips of angels. When the angel spoke to the women at the tomb that Jesus was risen, listen to what the angel said, Mark chapter 16, verse 6, you seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified, he is risen. That's what the angel said. The disciples on the road to Emmaus called Jesus this. This is what they said, Luke chapter 24, verse 19, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. Philip, who was a brand new follower of Jesus, he told his brother Nathaniel that they had, and this is John chapter 1, verse 45, We found him in whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. When the soldiers came to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, they said who they were looking for. What do you think the title was? Jesus of Nazareth. When Peter preached to the crowd of thousands on the day of Pentecost. The first time he identified Jesus before that vast multitude, 3,000 of whom would come to faith in Christ on that very day of Pentecost. The first time he identified Jesus, he called him Jesus of Nazareth. That's Acts chapter 2, verse 22. And then later, when Peter first preached the gospel to the Gentiles, he took care to describe the Savior as Jesus of Nazareth. That's Acts chapter 10, verse 38. Now, those are remarkable in their variety, in the breadth of them, but I haven't even told you what I think are the two most remarkable usages of the title Jesus of Nazareth. The one is recorded in John chapter 19, verse 19. It tells us, that when Pilate commanded that the condemned, the Pilate commanded that Jesus be condemned to the cross and that the crime of which he was condemned be placed above his head, this is what it was written in three languages Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Do, do you realize, ladies and gentlemen, that that title for Jesus was literally nailed to the cross? It was literally hanging above his head on the cross. That's what it said above him, Jesus of Nazareth. 
But the most amazing usage to me in the entire New Testament, the the one that just boggled my mind, is found in Acts chapter 22, verse 8. It's when the Savior confronted Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus. Now, I know that Jesus didn't confront Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 22, but he's telling about the experience many years later when he's testifying before a Roman government official. And he's recalling what happened. And this is what Jesus said, according to Paul, Remembering when he was Saul of Tarsus, he says, this is how Jesus identified himself from heaven. He said, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now that blew my mind because that tells us that the ascended, glorified, seated at the right hand of God the Father, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God enthroned in heaven, he said, I am am Jesus of not I was not at one time I would I am Jesus of Nazareth whom you are persecuting now when you take it all together it's kind of impressive at least in my mind it's a title that was used by angels and by demons it was heard in the temple courts and it was heard among demon haunted tombs it was used by hostile Romans and by sympathetic gospel writers It was used by those people who arrested him and by those people who loved him. It was used by those who just started following Jesus and by those who had been been followers of his for years. It was a title used by little servant girls and by dignified Roman governors. It was used by those who crucified him and it was used by those who preached him as the savior of the world. It was used to describe him to Jews and it was used to describe him in Gentiles. It was used to describe him on the cross, written in Hebrew, written in Greek, and written in Latin. And most importantly, at least in my mind, the risen, glorified, ascended, enthroned Jesus used it to describe himself. Now, how did Jesus ever become so associated with this title, Jesus of Nazareth? And what does it mean? Is there anybody here this evening who would think, well, it's meaningless. It's just where it was from. It's a throwaway line. It doesn't have any meaning. No, friends, I would suggest to you that the idea that that title deliberately chosen, Jesus of Nazareth, is rich with meaning. Now, first of all, we have to make a distinction here. We are talking about Nazareth in the Galilee region. Nazareth in the Holy Land. We're not talking about Nazareth Pennsylvania, which has a population of about 6,000 people, according to the year 2000 census. It's the home of Martin Guitars and Mario Andretti. Who knew? That's Nazareth, Pennsylvania. We're not talking about that place. We're talking about Nazareth in the region of Galilee. And chronologically, the first mention of Nazareth in the Bible is found in Luke chapter 1, where we learn that the angel Gabriel went to Nazareth to speak to a girl from that town that she would have the singular honor of becoming the mother of the Messiah. So Nazareth was a very special place because of this. Nazareth was the place where seemingly Mary and Joseph both grew up, right? This was their hometown. Nazareth was the place where Mary and Joseph were betrothed or engaged unto marriage. Nazareth was the place where Gabriel came to Mary and told her that she was the highly favored one who would bear the Messiah. Nazareth was the place 
where the Holy Spirit of God overshadowed Mary and in a mysterious and a miraculous way, she conceived the child Jesus in her womb while she remained a virgin. Nazareth was the place where Joseph learned that Mary was pregnant and he knew that he didn't do it. Nazareth was the place where an angel came to Joseph in a dream and told him not to put Mary away as if she had been unfaithful to him because she had been faithful to him and that child within her was miraculously put there by the Holy Spirit. Nazareth was the place where the the pregnant Mary and Joseph were hurriedly married and Nazareth was the place where they lived with the whispers of the villagers Every one of them which knew the scandal or the so-called scandal surrounding the mysterious pregnancy of Mary and their hurried wedding. Now, if nothing else happened in redemptive history in Nazareth, that would be enough. You would think, wow, what a special place Nazareth is in the plan of God. All of this happened there. And so for all of that, you might think Nazareth, a very special place. But when you start digging into the history of Nazareth, It's a special place, but it's only special for its absolute unspecialness. Does that make any sense to you? It is a spectacularly unspectacular place. It's in the general region of Galilee. Have you ever been to Israel? Have you ever seen the Sea of Galilee? The Sea of Galilee is one of the most beautiful sights in Israel. It's so wonderful to look at. And when you're in Israel and you look at the Sea of Galilee, when I'm there, I kind of go around there and around the shores of the Sea of Galilee, and I tell myself, I could live here. This is beautiful. Nazareth is really nowhere near the Sea of Galilee. It's 15 miles away. It's six miles away from the closest major road in that day. It was a backwater area. It had no good water supply. There was one fairly weak well that was in the center of the village. The village of Nazareth is not mentioned once in the Old Testament. It's not mentioned once in the Apocrypha. And in the writings of the Jewish historian Josephus, it is mentioned not once. It's nowheresville. It has no particular meaning. There aren't even any interesting archaeological finds there. I will make one exception. One of the few interesting things that they found in archaeology in Nazareth was a marble slab with Greek writing that described some very interesting events that happened somewhere else, not in Nazareth. (laughs) As I said before, the special thing about Nazareth was its unspecialness. It was not a particularly bad place or an evil place. It was uninteresting, unamazing, insignificant. And if it was anything, it was something of a joke. I want to press that point home. It wasn't a bad place. Now, earlier in the week, uh, Tim Patrick, one of the guys here on the church staff and a guy who does so much with the drug and alcohol ministry here. He took me into town, into the city, and we went into the Kensington neighborhood. Wow. Now, you know what? If you could put that on your resume, I came from Kensington. You'd be saying something, wouldn't you? Man, I came from a bad place and here I am. I've triumphed over it all. You couldn't say that about Nazareth. 
It's not as if it was notoriously bad. But neither was it glorious. Neither was it Jerusalem, the city of the temple and the priesthood and all the institutions. It wasn't notoriously bad. It wasn't wonderfully good. It was just kind of no place. As I said before, if it was anything, it was a bit of a joke. Now, every area has towns or villages or whatever that are a bit of a joke in the midst. People joke about that. I don't know what it is in your particular area. You can just fill in the blank right now as I speak. But you know what I'm talking about, Nazareth was just that kind of place. Do you remember the reaction of Nathaniel when his brother Philip told him about Jesus of Nazareth? What, what did Nathaniel say? Nathaniel was convinced that Jesus could not be the Messiah because he came from Nazareth and nothing good could come from Nazareth. That was his reaction in John chapter 1. Yet Jesus deliberately identified himself with Nazareth. Not only was that his parents' hometown... Not only was that where his parents were married, not only was that where he was miraculously conceived, but Jesus deliberately in the plan of God the Father chose to come back to Nazareth and to make it his home. Let's read our text again, Matthew chapter 2, starting at verse 22. But when he, that's Joseph, when Joseph heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Now, Joseph and Mary left Nazareth to go to Bethlehem because of the taxation that Caesar Augustus had imposed upon the entire earth. And it was while they were on, excuse me, while they were in Bethlehem that Jesus was born. Apparently, the text doesn't tell us for certain, but apparently Jesus and Mary and Joseph lived in Bethlehem for a few years or so, something like that, until the threat of the massacre of the innocents that Herod was to, was to commit upon the whole region there, the Bethlehem and the whole surrounding area. Joseph and Mary, being divinely warned in a dream, they fled Judea and they went to Egypt. They stayed in Egypt for a period of time until Herod was dead. But Herod's successor, right here in verse 22, mentioned as Archelaus, he was even more predictable and perhaps more violent than his father. So when they came back out of Egypt, Joseph said, no, not Judea. Verse 22 again. And being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee and he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. A couple of remarkable things. First of all, why would Joseph and Mary return to Nazareth? There were a lot of towns, cities, and villages in the Galilee area. Galilee was a fairly populated region, fairly thick with towns and cities. But they chose to go back to Nazareth. Now, I know you might be saying, well, of course they would go back to Nazareth. That's their hometown. Friends, don't forget. They left Nazareth under the cloud of scandal. They left Nazareth because of a very suspicious pregnancy and a very hurried marriage. And then they left not long after that, responding to the census that Caesar Augustus had put upon the whole Western world. Now, the logical thing, or at least in my mind, for Joseph and Mary to do would have been to raise Jesus in Jerusalem. After all, this is the Messiah, and they knew it. Shouldn't he be raised? Shouldn't he grow up in the center of Judaism, especially being close to the temple? 
And who would want to return to Nazareth with its still whispering tongues about the young woman who got unexpectedly pregnant and the young man who married her in a hurry? Who would ever want to go back to such a place? But they did. They were guided by God and in the fulfillment of prophecy, they did so leaving Egypt, not going to Judea because of the danger of Archelaus. And they came and they were directed right to Nazareth. Now, it was remarkable that Joseph came back to Nazareth. It was remarkable again because Nazareth was an unremarkable town, but that's where Jesus grew up. I need to call your attention to something else in this text. Verse 23, and this sort of is a bit of an excursion, but I hope you'll be patient with me on this. And we'll get back to this point again of all what it means for Jesus to be from Nazareth. Matthew says of this in verse 23, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Now, the gospel of Matthew is filled with quotations from the Old Testament and fulfillments of Old Testament prophecy. And of all of Matthew's references to the Old Testament and to the prophets, this is one of the most interesting. Why? Because there is no specific Old Testament passage that says in the given words, he shall be called a Nazarene. And I can just imagine some Bible critic coming to you or coming to me and waving Matthew chapter 2 verse 23 in your face and saying, see, Matthew says that this passage is in the Old Testament and it's not in the Old Testament. The Bible's wrong. It's not inerrant. The Bible can't be trusted. And so I think it's worth it for us just to spend a few moments to clarify this point. Why would Matthew say such a thing? Why would Matthew say, let's look at it again, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Now, some people think here that Matthew meant that the Messiah would be a Nazarite. Do you know what a Nazarite is? A Nazarite was somebody who took a special vow of consecration in the Old Testament, according to a passage in Numbers chapter 6. And under this special vow of consecration, a person being specially devoted to God, they would never cut their hair, they would never go near a dead body, and they would never eat or drink anything that came from the grapevine. And this was a demonstration of their consecrated state. For example, Samson was a very notable Nazarite, right, from his birth. Well, the only problem with this is that even though Jesus was a remarkably consecrated man all of his life, there's no evidence in his life that he ever kept the vow of a Nazarite. So I don't think that this is what Matthew's speaking about. So what would it mean there? What specific prophecy from the Old Testament tells us that the Messiah would come from Nazareth? I do want you to notice something. Look very carefully at the text here. Let's read it again. Verse 23. I think you're going to be interested in this. It says that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. Okay. Remember that. Now I want you to go up a few verses. Verse 17 in the same chapter. Let's read that together. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, and then in verse 18, he gives the quotation from Jeremiah. Now go to chapter 3, verse 3. I'm sort of looking at the quotation before and the quotation after this one. I want you to notice a pattern. Verse 3, 
For this is he who was, he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah saying, and then he gives the quotation, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make way, the way, make, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Do you notice something here? In chapter 2, verse 17, he says, I am quoting from the prophet Jeremiah, and he gives an exact quote. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 3, he says, I am quoting from the prophet Isaiah, and then he gives an exact quote. Look at what he does again in verse 23 of chapter 2. That it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets. Which prophet? He doesn't tell you. Matter of fact, he puts prophets in the plural, doesn't he? Matthew is deliberately phrasing this quotation differently. He's not saying the prophet XYZ. He's saying this is what was announced by the prophets to let you and I know something. I am not quoting any specific prophet from the Old Testament. I am quoting the idea, a concept that is throughout the prophets concerning the Messiah, that he would come from a humble origin, that he would come from obscurity, that he would be a Nazarene, as if he was a man from Nazareth. Let me read you a quotation from Charles Spurgeon where he deals with this very idea. He says this, He meant that the prophets have described the Messiah as one who would be despised and rejected of men. They spoke him as a great prince and conqueror when they described his second coming. But they set forth his first coming when they spoke of him as a root out of dry ground without former comeliness, who when he should be seen would have no beauty that men should desire him. The prophets said that he would be called by a despicable title, and it was so, for his countrymen called him a Nazarene. Now, if there was any specific passage in Matthew's mind, It was likely Isaiah 11, verse 1, where it says this, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The Hebrew word translated branch, right there in Isaiah 11, 1, the Hebrew word is nazir. And it sounds like Nazarene, and it's connected with the idea of the, uh, of the Messiah being humble and coming from a humble origin. This is no doubt the general concept of Matthew right there. So do you get it? Matthew's not quoting any one prophet. He's talking about the idea of the messianic expectation that he would be a humble man who came from a humble origin, and therefore he came from a place like Nazareth. Growing up in Nazareth, Jesus would mature in boyhood. And then in his young adulthood, he would fulfill the responsibilities that were expected of any eldest son. And then at some time, Joseph disappeared from the scene and Jesus became the man of the family. He worked his trade. He supported his family. He loved his God and he proved himself utterly faithful in a thousand small things before he formally entered his appointed ministry. But he did all of that in Nazareth. And nobody would be intimidated to meet someone who came from Nazareth. The tendency would be to immediately think yourself as someone better than someone who came from Nazareth. A few years ago, 
I spoke at a one-day conference. It was really a lovely gathering of Calvary Chapel churches in a certain part of England. And, and the, uh, the, the conference was held at Oxford. Now, when I say Oxford, your ears perk up, right? Wow, that's where smart people are. Now, it was a one-day church conference, and I was one of several speakers. But how about this? How about if I introduced myself to you as, I was a conference speaker at Oxford. That sounds impressive, doesn't it? You know, you might think, well, wait a minute. You know that? How about this? I preached a sermon in Kensington. That's not the same thing, is it, right? How you describe yourself, a place you associate yourself, it matters a lot, right? And Jesus deliberately chose this association with Nazareth. Now, for all of this, you might think that Jesus was popular in Nazareth, right? Hooray, our favorite son, the man who put us on the map. Everybody knows about Nazareth because Jesus is from Nazareth. No, no. Luke chapter 4 At the end part of the chapter, it tells us how Jesus went to Nazareth and preached in the synagogue there. And it says that all the people marveled at the gracious words that proceeded out of his mouth. But then they thought about how he was Joseph and Mary's son and that they knew him very well. And then they wondered why he didn't do some impressive miracles there. And then Jesus rebuked them. And Luke records this. Then all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath, and they tried to kill Jesus in Nazareth. Now, look, I know Jesus didn't have a business card, but if he would have had a business card, I think it would have read on it, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, his address actually would have been Capernaum. Because a little bit later in Matthew chapter 4, it tells us that Jesus moved to Capernaum when he began his ministry. So his address would have been Capernaum, but his title on his card would have been Jesus of Nazareth. Now, wouldn't you think that after they tried to kill him in Nazareth, he'd get new business cards and cross out Nazareth on there? But he didn't. He kept the association even to the point that when he spoke to Saul of Tarsus from heaven on the road to Damascus, he called himself Jesus of Nazareth. My friends, it stands. Just as Matthew said in verse 23, he shall be called a Nazarene. In the plan of God the Father, inspired by God the Spirit, and embraced by God the Son, the Messiah grew up in a somewhat despised town. And Jesus would become known as Jesus of Nazareth. And his followers would become known as Nazarenes. Yes, it's true. In Acts chapter 24, verse 5, listen carefully. The prosecutors of Paul said this to the judge. We have found this man, speaking of Paul, to be a pestilent fellow and a mover of sedition among all the Jews throughout the world and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. That's what they called Jesus. Or that's, excuse me, that's what they called the followers of Jesus in that day. And believe me, when they said it, they did not mean it as a compliment. When they called Christians the sect of the Nazarenes, it was a way to spit on those people. It was a way to cast an aspersion on them. He shall be called a Nazarene And friends, it even stands today. 
I was thinking about this message a few years back. It was just turning in my mind over and over again. Jesus of Nazareth, what does it mean? What's its significance? I knew there was something there, but I just felt like it didn't really have a handle on it yet. And so I took a visit to Israel. I was going to go there anyway, and I was visiting with some pastors I know. And I visited with a great, wonderful pastor in Israel, a man named Stephen Apple, who's the pastor of Calvary Chapel, Tel Aviv. Wonderful man. And I started chatting it up with Stephen. I said, Jesus, uh, Stephen, tell me about Jesus of Nazareth. Tell me about Nazareth. What does it mean? What, what is it? And he goes, well, this is the first thing you got to know. First of all, today, Nazareth is still mostly avoided by tourists and tours to Israel. It's still a fairly despised town. Well, it's not like nobody goes there on tours, but not many. It's not a popular tourist destination. Secondly, he said, He said, David, you should know that today in modern Hebrew, Jesus is sometimes called Ha-Notsri, which translates the Nazarite. Jews in Israel to this day sometimes refer to Jesus as the Nazarene. And then he told me this. This really blew my mind. He said, today in modern Hebrew in Israel, Christians are commonly called Nozrim, which means Nazarites. And Christianity is commonly called Nozirut, Nazariteism. That's what they call Christianity in the Hebrew tongue in Israel. So what does this mean, friends? Why? Why this radical and enduring identification with Nazareth? With Nowheresville, if I could call it that, with a place that seems like it's more marked by losers than winners. Well, let me spend the rest of my time here just drawing out a few points of observation and application why I think this is important. Number one, this shows us that what is important to God is often not important to man, or I'll turn it around. Let's turn it around, shall we? What is important to man is often not important to God. If we had planned the coming of the Messiah, or maybe I should just speak for myself, if I had planned the coming of the Messiah, I would have never had him come from Nazareth. I would have chosen a place better or worse, bigger or smaller. I would have chosen a place that said something about a man instead of saying nothing about him. Jesus said, no, I'll be from Nazareth and I'll choose to identify myself from there. That's who I am. I will take that choice. It might be important to man to be from someplace notable, not to God. He thinks a different way than we think. Number two, it shows us that we are more concerned with popularity than Jesus is. Do you know why Jesus took the title Jesus of Nazareth? Well, one very important reason is that's where he was from. Now, he could have taken a different title. Would it have been a lie for him to say Jesus of Bethlehem? That's where he was born, right? Would it have been a lie for him to say Jesus of Capernaum? That's where he lived when he started doing his ministry. Would it have been a lie for Jesus to say, Jesus from heaven? That was just as true as well. But no, he said, listen, good or bad, like it or not, popular or unpopular, I came from Nazareth 
And that's who I am, and that's who I'm going to identify myself to be. Introducing yourself as Jesus of Nazareth was not the way to become popular. He knew that it was somewhat of a stain upon his reputation if being popular with man was his great concern. But it wasn't a great concern, and so he regarded it more important to be honest about himself than to be popular. And this leads to the third point. Point number three. It shows us that Jesus is not easily embarrassed. You know, I give a good part of my mental energy and some part of my physical energy every day to simply avoiding embarrassment. Don't you? I mean, I think about it. I think about it a lot. How can I not look like a fool in this situation? I think about it in my mind. I give my physical energy to it. It's a fairly high priority to me to avoid embarrassment. I'll tell you this. It's a much higher priority to me than it ever was to Jesus. And understanding this about Jesus is is a good rebuke to my pride. Matter of fact, when I think about this situation, it really hits home to me. Let me tell you just a little bit about myself. I grew up in Southern California. Now, I don't expect you to know the name of the cities or towns in California, but I'll I'll just give you a little story about myself. When I was born and for the first 15 years of my life, I grew up in a town or a city in Southern California called Rialto. Now, I don't expect that anybody here would know anything about Rialto. It's actually named after a beautiful bridge in, uh, uh, where is it, in Italy, the uh, Venice, Venice, Italy, a beautiful bridge in Venice, Italy, full of Mediterranean charm and beauty and style. And Rialto has none of that stuff. It's a smoggy, hot, dirty place. You want to know the kind of place that Rialto, California is? In the summer, it is so filled with smog, or at least it was when I was growing up, that there were mountains just a few miles away and you could not see the mountains all summer long. There are people who would move to Rialto in the summer and be shocked when wind started to blow in the fall that they lived right close to mountains that they never saw. (laughs) Dirty, hot, smoggy. It's been referred to affectionately as the armpit of Southern California. (laughs) Now, that's where I grew up until I was 15 years old. Now, when I was 15, my family moved to Ventura, California, right on the coast. Oh, and going from Rialto to Ventura, oh, it was like heaven, man. It was like going someplace glorious, someplace beautiful. I mean, I'm going to a place that that is right on the beach and has charm and has style and is great. Now, let me tell you something. When I tell people where I'm from, what do you think I tell them? (laughs) Do you think I tell them that I'm from Rialto? Or do you think I tell them I'm from Ventura? Yeah, you're right. I tell him I'm from Ventura. Matter of fact, that's how I choose to think of myself. I don't even think of myself as being from Rialto. I think of myself as being from Ventura. Now, I can't say it's exactly a lie, but listen. Jesus is not easily embarrassed. He could have chosen another place to identify himself, but he did not. He said, no, I'm from Nazareth. Point number four. This shows us That God brings many great things from unexpected places. And that he likes doing this. 
You know the glorious thing about bringing a Messiah Messiah from Nazareth? Nobody expected it. Nobody. You bring a Messiah from Jerusalem. You bring a Messiah maybe from Bethlehem. You bring a Messiah from Alexandria or maybe a Rome or a great city of the world. Not, not from Nowheresville. But nobody expected it. And friends, do you know how much God loves to do this? Do you know how much God loves to take unexpected people in unexpected situations and to raise them up into just a wonderful way that he uses them as a tool in his hand? And you look at people today and you say, well, look, God is really using, no wonder God is using them. Oh, you count the clock back 10, 15, 20 years and you'll see just how unlikely it was that God would ever use such a person. God loves to do this. He loves to bring many great things from unexpected places. Point number five, Jesus is happy to identify himself with the weak, the despised, the unimportant, and the obscure. Right? Wouldn't you say that that's what Nazareth was all about? Here they are, the people of Nazareth, right here. They're all around us here on the platform. What are they? They're weak. They're despised. They're unimportant. They're unobscure. And Jesus comes around and says, I am one of you. I am a Nazarene. I am Jesus of Nazareth. And let me tell you, my heart rejoices when I think about that. Because if I think of those four things, weak, despised, unimportant, obscure, I bet one of those hits everybody in this room. Some of us get all four of them thrown in. You know what? Jesus is not ashamed to identify himself with you, with us. Now, now we benefit from this because this is who we are, are we not? But it also shows us how we should be towards other people. Are you ashamed to identify yourself with the weak and the despised and the unimportant and the obscure? When you walk into a room, do you look for the cool people, the good people, the people that you should be seen with? And those are the people you gravitate towards. You, you, you portion off the part of the room. No, I'm not going to associate with them. Speak with that person in a friendly manner. You've got to be kidding me. Look at who they are. That is not the heart of the mind of Jesus at all. He looks for the weak, the despised, the unimportant, the obscure. And he says, I will associate myself with. With you. Do you know what this means? This means that we can really be who we are. Today, more than ever, if people don't like their normal life, if they don't like who they are, if they want to be someone else, then they just live a lie or a fantasy. Do you know how easy it is to do this today? You know, one of the most incredible tools that allow people to live a false fantasy life today is what? It's the internet, of course, right? Over the internet, you can represent yourself to be whatever you want to be, this false person, this fantasy of which you present yourself. Here, you show the word, this is who I am, like this person. Think of all the role-playing games that are popular today among grown-ups. Think of all the ways that people use the internet to be something that they're not. And think of all the lies that we tell or at least imply, all meant to cover up who we really are because somehow we're convinced that who we really are is no good or at least it's uninteresting. I've got to be someone different. Not too long ago, my daughter 
uh, was living in California. This was a couple years ago. Now she serves as a missionary in Ireland. But my daughter had a, a friend, and uh, this friend was really remarkable. This friend was a uh, pre-med student in, at university there in, in Santa Barbara. Uh, she was, uh, had an amazing job with a legal, excuse me, not pre-med, pre-law in, in a university there. She had an amazing job in, in, a, in a legal firm, and then she got accepted to Harvard. And she was going to go to school there. And she got this amazing car and amazing connections and amazing vacations. And my daughter was her friend. And she, she prayed with her and cried with her through the night over this romantic trouble and this crisis in her life. And this thing happening there and the other thing happening over there. And my daughter just loved her and helped her and prayed with her. Only to find out later that it was all a lie. That this young woman was a compulsive liar. And, and all these things in her life were fabrications. Oh, sure, she took a couple of classes at the community college. But she wasn't pre-law. She hadn't been accepted into Harvard. She didn't have this. She didn't have that. Now, on the one hand, you get angry, right, on behalf of your daughter. How, how could you do this to my daughter? But on the other hand, there's a profound sadness you feel in your heart for that woman. What is it? that you feel is so terrible about yourself that you have to put on such a lie to other people. You see, Jesus of Nazareth means that Jesus was who he really was. He wasn't Jesus of Bethlehem or Jesus from Egypt or even Jesus from Galilee, even those were all true in some way. Because Jesus was who he was, we can be honest about who we are. Now, why do I spend so much time on this point? I think it's absolutely essential for this reason. You have to be real about yourself. And there is so much phoniness among people today that this is my great fear. Oh, this is my fear, is that you bring your phony self to church. And it's your phony self that worships. And it's your phony self that prays. And it's your phony self that's around the people of God. Well, let me tell you, I don't know what's going to happen with that facade, with that phony person. But it's the real you that needs Jesus. It's the real you that needs to get saved. And until you bring the real you to the real Jesus, nothing much is going to happen in your life. So can you just say, God, I'm going to be honest before you. If I'm, from a, if I'm a Nazarene, then that's what I am. And here I am, Lord, before you, warts and all. But it's so easy. Sometimes we even bring it into church. Often we bring it into church. Just say, no, Lord, I'm going to bring the real me before the real Jesus. Okay, my last point. This is number six. Jesus of Nazareth means that it's okay not to be cool. Well, I really mean that. You know, if there was anything not cool, it was being from Nazareth, right? Right? You don't, you don't think of a really cool guy. Hey, I'm from Nazareth. Well, what kind of a loser are you? A cool guy would never introduce himself as being from Nazareth. And this is what we need to understand is that Jesus loves and died for, and saves, and blesses 
the uncool ones as well as the cool ones. Now, many people think today that the best way to present Christianity is to show how really cool it is to be a Christian. And then if you become a Christian, Jesus will make you really cool. Honestly, isn't this the way it goes? Man, I noticed this on a website not too long ago I looked at for a big Christian conference. And I can't really describe it. And I don't want to put down the conference. Maybe it was a great conference. But man, I just looked at the advertising that it had on the internet. And man, the music and the lights and the games and the promotions. And then the people that they used to kind of promo the conference. They were just dripping. They were uber cool. You could just see it. (laughs) And listen, my reaction to this is like, listen, I don't know what they're doing at that conference. But I don't belong there. That's the kind of conference I would go to. And they say, I'm sorry, sir. We're not, we're not letting your type into here. Because that's what it was all about. Listen, friends, if the whole point of being a Christian is to make you cool, it's not working for me. Just ask my kids. You see, I, I often feel awkward. I often feel out of place. I'm not the right look. I don't have enough of the right hair anymore. I'm definitely not the right shape to be cool. I certainly don't have the right fashion sense. And sometimes I look at these uber cool Christian guys and I say this. Honestly, I say, look, that's great for them. But what about me? I've been walking with Jesus for a long time. And I don't seem to have that cool confidence that they seem to have. And then I realize this. I realize that it's Jesus of Nazareth. He he didn't live his life trying to be cool. He loves me. He died for me. He saves me. He's my Lord. Just like we sang earlier tonight, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. And then I realize it. That's who Jesus is. Now look. If you are cool, and looking out here tonight, I can see there are many cool ones among us. Jesus loves you too. But look, just make sure that being cool is not your idol. And make sure that you're following the right Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. Father, thank you that you are gentle and lowly of heart. Thank you that you came unto us in a way that surprises us, in a way that does not intimidate us, but it it embraces us into your love. And Father, I I pray especially that you would help us all, Lord, each one of us. Lord, help us all to be real before you. To bring the real self before the real Jesus. So that really who we are can die with Jesus Christ and be raised again with him. We love you, Lord. We love you for your work in our life. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to Get Fed Today.
Today's sermon comes from Pastor David Guzik. If you enjoy the message, you can access more of Pastor David's teaching ministry by visiting EnduringWord.com. 